Well, good morning again. My name is Drew Burdett, and I am the RUF pastor at Oregon State University. Uh, it's good to be with you all now. I've been a part of our presbytery for almost nine years. I've known E.C. Bell for nine years, but I've never got to actually meet you as his congregation. So it's good to be with you all uh, and to meet you in person. Um, for those of you who do not know, RUF is Reform University Fellowship, and it is a strategic ministry of our church to reach OSU students for Christ and equip them to serve. Um, it's our hope that the Lord will build uh, his church and his kingdom here in Oregon and the Pacific Northwest through our efforts there at Oregon State. Uh, and this is a new work. It's the only RUF in the state of Oregon. And as such, I desperately need your help. Uh, one of the chief tasks of any church planner, RUF planner, missionary, is usually that first year is to find a team of supporters who can come alongside of them to pray for them and support their work. And we're looking for people here in Oregon who care about the next generation of Oregonians. And as you might guess, uh, COVID has not made my life very easy this last year trying to start a work and build a team. And so one of the things that we're hoping to do is to be put together some RUF info desserts this summer, hopefully if some of the COVID restrictions are lifted. And I would love to do one of those here in Newburgh maybe. Uh, so what you can do right now is I have a newsletter in the back by the, the, by the front door of the church. And if you could just sign up for our newsletters, for our prayer requests, hear more about what RUF's doing, that would be a huge blessing to us. Um, and so we can also give you more information as we go this summer. And after Easter, I'm going to start sending out a weekly kind of uh, devotional through the book of uh, Philippians through that. So we'd love for you to be able to get that. I'd love for you to sign up for a newsletter. Um, that would be a huge help to us. Well, one of, the, uh, one of the perks of moving as a pastor is that all of your old illustration and stories are now back up on the table again. And so with that, I want to take you back to 2009. Uh, 2009 was a big year for me. Uh, I married my wife, Jessica, that year. Two, uh, sorry, I graduated from college first. Two weeks later, I married Jessica. And then two weeks after that, uh, we packed up the few belongings that we had, and we drove to St. Louis, Missouri, where we both started grad school at Covenant Theological Seminary. And uh, that summer, sorry, that, uh, that Christmas, rather, we drove the four hours south to Memphis, Tennessee, where most of her family lives. And uh, Jessica and I, we dated long distance most of the time, and so her family didn't know me um, hardly at all. Uh, I think I'd only met them a couple of times and so they had no data for what to get me for Christmas. The only data point they had was seminary. So that year, every present we got had something to do with Jesus. We had crosses and all the stuff. And I remember one of the things we got was this really large um, faith, hope, and love wall art. And uh, we love faith, hope, and love, but the problem is, is that our, our apartment was 500 square feet, and it was already decorated. And so we had this problem. What do we do with faith, hope, and love? And so we got home, we put it in our closet, and uh, the next week, we got invited to a, a Christmas party with other first-year seminary students. And at this Christmas party, they were going to do a white elephant gift exchange. You know how these things work, right? You, you bring a present uh, wrapped up, you put it in the middle of the room, and when it, everybody gets a number, and when it's your turn, you either can get a present from the middle of the room, or you can steal something from somebody else. And so Jessica and I, we saw our opportunity uh, to get rid of faith, hope, and love. I mean, to re-gift faith, hope, and love to somebody else who might appreciate it more. And so uh, we packed up, wrapped up this present. We put it, we brought it with us. We put it in the middle of the room. And we just waited anxiously for somebody to get it. Because we thought, you know, this will be, 
So kind of a little bit of an overly Christian gift with an overly Christian population, all these seminary students. So we thought we'll get a few chuckles, a few eye rolls, and if we play our cards right, we'll go home with a uh, you know, bag of coffee. But when somebody opened up Faith, Hope, and Love, the room just erupted. Everybody was so excited for this gift, and it became the gift that everybody wanted. Husbands and wives were uh, partnering together to try to snag it and go home with it. Uh, People were, were stealing faith, hope, and love left and right, and we just sat back amazed. Christians love these words, faith, hope, and love. And depending on where you live, you'll either find them on Christians' walls or you'll find them tattooed on their arms, but you will find these words. Now, where did they come from, and why are they important? Well, obviously, you can find these words throughout the whole Bible, faith, hope, and love. Yet, it's the Apostle Paul that we have uh, to thank for their popularity. If you read through Paul's letter in the New Testament, you'll see that these words kind of pop up all over the place. And Paul used them as a summary for the Christian life. It seemed like when he looked at a person or a church, he was looking for these characteristics. Did they have faith, hope, and love? Let me give you just one example from a letter he wrote to a young church in Colossae. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all of the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. If you're here this morning and you would consider yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, do these three words characterize your heart? Are they what you long to grow in? Do you long to grow in faith, hope, and love? What about your community here as a church, your small groups maybe you're a part of, your men's prayer, ladies' prayer? Are these words characteristic of your life together? Is this a community of faith, hope, and love? And this morning, I want to start a a three-part series on these three characteristics. I'm not sure when I'll finish it, but today we're going to look at faith. So let's pray and ask the Lord to be with us as we consider this chief virtue in our lives. Christ, I thank you that we get this opportunity to come together to think about your word, to worship you, to praise you, and to be um, shaped by you. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that you would use your word, you would use this conversation that we have on faith, Lord, to, to grow us, to mature us, to uh, give us new insights, and tune our hearts, Lord, to worship you and to love you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at biblical faith, and and to do that I want to ask three questions. The first question is simply, what is faith? I want us to kind of work towards a working definition for that. The second question I want to ask is, what is faith's object? And then lastly, and maybe most importantly for our lives, How do we faith? And I know that sounds weird, but once we get there, I hope it'll make sense. How do we faith? All right, let's begin with what is faith? You know, often I think people talk about faith as if it were just, it's just wishful thinking, right? It's it's belief without evidence. But what is faith? If it's one of our chief characteristics, the chief virtues of our community or of our lives, what do we mean when we say we should be a people of faith? Well, I want to work towards a definition by way of analogy. And the analogy that I want to use for biblical faith might be an odd one. It's uh, skydiving. Now, before we go down that road, I just want to see 
where we're all at on this topic. If I were to pay for it and COVID wasn't a thing, I'm just curious, who would go skydiving? All right, and, and who would never, ever go skydiving? Show your hands. All right, okay. It's good to know where everybody's coming from. Um, perfectly good airplane. All right, how is skydiving an analogy for biblical faith? Well, let me give you two reasons. The first is that both are surprisingly rational. Now, I just saw most people did not raise their hand. They are not going skydiving. So most of you are thinking there is nothing rational about jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. But as much as we might not want to do it, I don't think that's completely true. And the reason is that nobody jumps out of an airplane without a plan. Right? Nobody, or without a good plan. Nobody jumps out of an airplane with an old bed sheet or an umbrella, uh, hoping that it will catch them or bring them safely to the ground. Nobody jumps out thinking, well, it's a cloudy day. The clouds will probably slow me down. No. What do we do? Well, one, we're going to use a parachute. Just think about all of the research and development that have gone into parachute design. Um, so we're going to use a parachute. And secondly, we're going to go through a reputable agency. At the very least, I would imagine anybody who's going to go skydiving is at least going to check the Yelp reviews to make sure it's actually a pretty good place. And the stats aren't that bad. Only one in 500,000 attempts results in a fatality. Now, personally, I don't like those odds. And so I'm with you. I'm probably not ever going to go skydiving. But I can see how a rational person gathering up this evidence would actually put on the parachute and jump out of a plane. Now, like skydiving, biblical faith is rational. It's not simply wishful thinking. It's based off of reason. And we can see that in all the different books that have been written about the Christian faith. But I want to take us to just two examples from the Bible itself. The early Christians cared about getting things right. They wanted to make sure that their faith, what they believed, was actually based in reality and based off reasons. Let me give you just two examples. The first is going to be from the Apostle Paul. And in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the earliest letters, New Testament written, New Testament books that were written is 1 Corinthians. And in this letter, Paul is addressing a bunch of church folk who were skeptical as to whether the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. This is chapter 15 of his letter. Now, what did he say? He didn't say, well, um, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Just believe. He didn't say that's not that important. No. He said that Christians, if the resurrection didn't happen, Christians are to be pitied above all people because they are fools. Our faith is rooted in something that had to have happened in reality or it is not a good faith. And he goes on to list a whole uh, host of people, eyewitnesses, who saw Jesus in his resurrected body. Christians cared about historicity. See it in Paul. Where else do we see it? Well, we see it in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, he uh, pens one of the four Gospels which tell the story of the life, the teachings, and the death and resurrection of Jesus. But he wasn't a disciple of Jesus. So where did he get these stories? And why should we listen to him? Well, he tells us in the first four verses of his Gospel, he says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? 
that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. What is the Gospel of Luke? The Gospel of Luke is an orderly account derived through research, what we might call investigative journalist-type techniques, to give us reasons, stories from eyewitnesses to back up the things that we have been taught. And so what we see in the very earliest of Christians is that their faith wasn't just simply wishful thinking. Their faith wasn't just simply this kind of philosophical ideas that make sense. No, they were rooted in reality. So biblical faith is, is rational. It's based off of reasons. Now, how else is skydiving a good analogy of biblical faith? Well, not only are both of them rational, both require action. Just think about skydiving. All right, let's just say that you did a lot of research and everybody here, you, you changed your mind. You thought, this is actually a really safe thing. It's fun. Uh, I want to do it. And so you pay your money. You, uh, you sign the waiver. You, you get dressed up in the gear. You even get on the airplane and ride up into the clouds. Have you skydived yet? No. Right? To jump or not to jump, that's the question of skydiving. If you do not leap out of the plane, you have not done it yet. And like skydiving, biblical faith actually takes action. Faith is not something that you simply possess. It is that. We just said it has a content to it. But it is more than that. It's also something you do. Technically, faith is both a noun and a verb. Now let me show you how this works using uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is probably the place in the Bible that has the most robust teaching of about faith in it. And it begins like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. Now that sounds like something you possess. That sounds like something that has a content to it, and it is. But the rest of the chapter rolls out examples of what God's people did by faith. Just listen to what their faith looked like. And as you listen... Recognize that these are verbs. What did Abel do by faith? He says, Abel offered sacrifices. He gave up the thing that had the most potential in his life for his health and his wealth and his happiness. He gave that up. What did Noah do? Noah built a boat. Abraham left home. Sarah conceived a son and had a baby in old age. And the list goes on. People gave blessings, they hid babies, they embraced suffering, they enforced justice, they kept the Passover. Right? You could see their faith, what they actually believed, by what they did. All right, so what is faith? We've been working towards a definition. And here's our definition. Biblical faith is a conviction that is based in reason that propels us into action. Biblical faith is a conviction that's based in reason that propels us into action. It's both a noun and a verb, and both of these things have to go together. A couple years ago, I had a, a student when I was a minister up at the University of Washington. His name was Connor. And uh, make sure I get this right. Connor uh, was a, a Mormon when he was young. And then he left the Mormon church and he became a Christian. And then he left the Christian church and he became a Mormon again. 
And then when I met him, he had left the Mormon church and had become a, he was an atheist and a Buddhist by the time that I met him. And he came to our large group uh, where we do kind of a worship service and I teach. He came to that for his um, first week of school a couple years ago. A few weeks after that, we got together and I kind of heard his story. We, we had coffee together. I didn't see a whole lot of him after that, though. But out of the blue, I get this text from Connor. And he says, I want to meet up and I want to talk about faith. And I thought, well, this is incredibly easy. Like, wow, I can't believe already we're here. And so we get together and uh, he says... I want you to teach me how to become a person of faith. And I thought, wow, this is, this is great. This is, why we do, this is why we do this. And then um, he went on to say, I'm not interested in Jesus or any sort of institutionalized faith. I'm done with all of that. I just want you to teach me how to be a person of faith. And I looked at him and I said, I'm sorry, I can't help you do that. And he walked away, kind of like the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel, he walked away sad. Now, one thing we see is it's really hard to change paper of your notes when you can't lick your finger because of a mask. Um, All right, so where's my question is, why couldn't I, as a pastor, help this guy grow in faith? And this leads me to our second point. We've already answered what faith is. But another important question that we must ask is, what is faith's object? Or who is faith's object? You see, when faith is used as a verb, it's a transitive verb. That means that someone or something must receive the the action, right? It takes an an object. Uh, Kick is a good example of a transitive verb. It describes an action. The foot is swung through the air, and it collides with something. And that something is the direct object. And it matters what the direct object is, right? Uh, John kicked the ball has a totally different meaning than John kicked the bucket, right? Wait for it. You'll get it eventually. Now, the object matters for the verb. What or who is faith's object? Well, this is easy. The object of our faith is Jesus. Now, remember Paul's prayer In Colossians chapter 1, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the big question is not, how great is your faith? The question for us is, what is your faith in? I think you can see why I couldn't help Connor. Christians do not have faith in faith. Christians have faith in Jesus. Our faith is only as good as its object. We are called to have faith in Jesus. Jesus is our Savior, not our faith. Now here's why this is incredibly important. If your Jesus is small, your faith will be small. If your Jesus is small, your faith will be small. What about you? Do you find that you maybe you struggle to believe or you find yourself often trying to muster up enough faith to live differently? Well, could it be that the reason that you struggle with faith is that actually your view of Jesus may be small 
or maybe it's distorted, or maybe it's undeveloped, or it's blocked. And if that's true, you don't need more faith. What you need is a more robust Jesus. So this leads me to our last question. We've asked, what is faith? It's this conviction that is based in reason that propels us into action. The object of our faith is not our faith. We're not people who are just trying to muster up enough belief to save us. Our faith is in Jesus as Savior. So how do we do it? How do we faith? Well, Hebrews 12 gives us the answer. The author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So how do we faith? How do we walk by faith? How do we grow in our faith? Well, the answer is actually to stop thinking and focusing on our faith and to fix our eyes on Jesus. Now, that's easier said than done because it's hard to fix our eyes on Jesus. I want to uh, to read a quote from John Calvin, and it's printed in your order of worship, I believe on the page where the sermon notes are, to kind of help us think through how do we actually fix our eyes on Jesus. And here's what he says. For how comes it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines, but because the excellence of Christ is not perceived in us? For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence, there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mist with the view of obscuring Christ. Because he knows that by this means the way is open for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine to place Christ before the view, such as he is, with all of his blessings, that his excellence may be truly perceived. There's two things from this quote that I want us to see. The first one is that Satan wants to weaken our faith by obscuring Christ. That's his chief task to keep us from growing in our faith is actually to make Jesus small, to to hide him, to trivialize him, to make him peripheral in our lives. He wants to cover up the whole Christ with this mist. So, yeah, maybe you can see a little bit of him, but you don't see in his full glory. That is his chief strategy. It reminds us of Uncle Screwtape from uh, C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters when he wrote, It is funny how morals always picture us as putting things into their minds, In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. So you think about your own life. What is it in your life that keeps your view of Jesus kind of small and not as robust and filled out as it could be? I mean, it could be a lot of different things. And it could be very, very good things. It could be hobbies that you have. It uh, It could be Netflix. It could be our work. It could, be, um, our, uh, it could be skiing. It could be our family. It could either be our busyness or our boredom. Right? It doesn't matter what it is. What Satan wants to do is distract us, keep Jesus small. Make him maybe just the, the, the person who is concerned with your sin or a certain aspect of your holiness. Let's just kind of focus there and let's not have a full, robust Jesus. Satan wants to keep us from knowing Jesus. 
The second thing I want us to see is that faith increases when we see the excellence of Jesus. Faith grows when our view of Jesus grows. Faith grows when we see Jesus in all his complexity, in all his excellence, when we see him wrapped in his gospel. You know, if, if the Bible is, is correct, then right now there is a man, God in the flesh, in a resurrected body with blood in his veins, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is ruling the universe in his power, and he is here with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. His name is Jesus, and he's calling you and he's calling me to follow him. What do you know about him? If we did an open notebook test right now where you sat down and you wrote everything of how you think about who Jesus is and how you live, what would you write down? I mean, just think about the complexity and diversity of Jesus' titles and descriptions in the Bible. He's the Word of God. He's the light of the world. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the one through whom the world was created. He's the King, the Son of David. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the powerful Son of Man of Daniel 7. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the bread of life, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. Right, we could go on and on and on. He has many different titles in Scripture. How would your life look differently if your convictions about Jesus propelled you into action? How would your life look differently if you took the whole Bible and allowed it to build up your understanding of who Christ is, took those things to heart, and allowed them to propel you into new action? Let me give you a few examples. Who is Christ? Let's just take three examples. First, Christ is our priest. Hebrews 10 says that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of, of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ is a priest. Okay, well, what do you do with a priest? What do you bring to a priest? Well, you bring your sin, you bring your shame, and you bring your guilt. And as our priest, what does he give us? He gives us forgiveness and peace, and he gives us freedom. We are saved and washed and purified and made holy through his work and declaration. Okay, what would it look like instead of being buried in your shame and guilt when you sin and trying to muster up more and more faith, instead of doing that, you took your eyes off your sin and off your shame and off of your unbelief and you put your eyes on your great high priest who has made a sacrifice himself for your sins. How would that change how you lived? Who is Christ? He's not just our priest. He's also our prophet. Hebrews 1 says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. What do you bring to a prophet? Well, you bring to a prophet the same things you might bring to a professor, right? You bring your questions and your curiosity. And what does he give to us? He gives us a whole new way to think about life. Right, we all have lots of questions that we're trying to process through. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a man or woman? What is justice? What is love? Where, what is identity and where does it come from? 
How do we think about money? How do we think about our bodies? How do we think about our depression? How do we think about our food? How do we think about our vocation? We're constantly asking these questions. Where are we going with them? What if instead of creating our own worldview from a kind of a mosaic of our friends and our mentors and our culture or our news sources or even our own personalities and desires, we instead went with curiosity and humility to Jesus and his word to teach us how to live as his image bearers in his world. You see how that conviction would propel you into a different action. He's our priest. He is our prophet. Who else is he? He's also our king. Ephesians 1 says that God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand on the throne in the heavenly places where he rules. What do you bring a king? We bring our king our anxieties, and our allegiance. And what does he give? He gives peace and comfort and commandments and instructions. He says, fear not and follow me. And so what if, instead of maybe being racked with anxiety or controlled by a fear of failure, constantly wondering if I'm getting things right, what if we went to our king and our master for peace and direction. You see how this works? Like we need all of God's word to fill up our understanding of who Jesus is. Because if our faith is not just in faith itself, but if our faith is in Jesus, the way that we grow in our faith is by having a more robust understanding of who he is. And it takes all of God's word to fill up and to fill out Jesus and his excellencies. Biblical faith is never untethered from Jesus. He is the object of our faith. And so if we want to grow in faith, to be a person of faith, then we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. I want to end this morning with a letter that a pastor wrote to his friend about Jesus. I think we could learn from. He said, Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settle on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and the excellencies of Christ and all that is in him. Let's pray. Christ, we, we come to you, Lord, asking that you will give us, at the very least, a curiosity of who you are. Lord, if we're honest, often our understanding of you is, is undeveloped, or maybe it is small, it's clouded. Maybe we know more than we actually uh, live because of the mist that Satan brings in that distracts us and pushes us away from you. And Lord, often when we get that way, we just feel like we need to have more faith. And so we hunker down at trying to be more faithful. And yet, Lord, you call us to fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, this morning, give us curiosity, give us hope. Help us to, to, to begin to, to long to know you more and to fill up our understanding of you and to live, to be propelled into action based off of who you are. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.